How you been? How's Kelowna? I'm actually um, in California. Nice. I'm, uh, I have a house down in Manhattan Beach. Um, and we actually came here early October as I anticipated that the rules and restrictions would change and get worse. And, uh, you know, um, I just didn't want to deal anymore with the inconsistencies and uh, lack of logic. So I bailed and got out of the country. And I've kind of moved around depending on weather, most important for my mental health. And then where at least I can deal with whatever restrictions they have where they, they don't impact me is great. And that's what I've been doing. Has weather in terms of sunshine brought a positive mindset for you? Is that what you seek usually? You know, for me, I, I never know what's going to impact me for sure negatively or one, one thing that might impact me in a positive matter, but I know what the list has on it. Okay. And, you know, for me, being in the fog, being in the cold, being in a confined space doesn't work well over periods of time for positive mental health or emotional balance. And um, if I can get outside more, that's better. If I can get outside and it's sunny, even better. And uh, and if it's hot, now I've, I've got lots going for me. Then I can work on other stuff if I'm feeling off. And you bike a lot. So that's good. Yeah. For me, exercise has always been there. I didn't really understand it as a child or, you know, a teenager or then as an adult. And, you know, I always came up with my rationalizations for it. But now with my, you know, better understanding of, you know, emotional health, self-awareness, I, I can see why I stayed busy. And now I can actually see for a different reason why I need to stay mobile. Has it been tough for you with COVID and all this ups and downs mentally because like you said the logic it doesn't make sense so much of it yeah. kind of a piss off to be honest yeah i don't know if yeah, it's so, fun for everybody to hear but yeah you know I mean. no so what's good i'm really glad you can focus on there's a feeling for you it's like i'm really pissed off i'm angry i mean that's a key to mental health is being able to say freely without worry of judgment mm-hmm. how you feel because that's the truth. How you feel is you don't make it up. Your feelings come to you, right? So when you ask me, you know, how have I dealt with COVID, the generic or general answer is, you know, like I've struggled and uh, I've gotten depressed twice and, uh, and it's caused me problems. But then I'll put a little comma there and say, you know, Zach, it surprised me why it's happened when I analyze it. I, I, from day one, I was never afraid of getting this. From day one, as a guy that's over 60, I wasn't afraid if I got it, I'm going to die. And that's what I saw everybody know. I saw most people doing that. The disease itself, when I looked at it and I studied it and I went, you know what? Yeah, it's bad, but I'm not going to let it get to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, there's a percent that I'm going to die from that. But in all fairness, you brought it up earlier. I've been hit by a car three times on my bike. I have a greater likelihood of dying on my bike or downhill skiing or racing cars. And they're dangerous. They're dangerous. Mm -hmm. But that's called living life. So if I'm not going to give up biking or downhill skiing, why am I going to stop living? And that's the struggle I've had with COVID is the restrictions have been such that um, 
I've had a hard time feeling like I can actually live my life in some capacity. And then I'm seeing everybody else's behaviors be negative. Everybody else's stuff is coming to the surface. So we can talk about that later. But you're seeing everybody act irritable and raging and getting mad and, and family abuses up and all this stuff, right? That's not COVID, by the way. So when I was having my stuff and my emotions and my unbalance and things that I'm not happy about when I want to admit it, it wasn't from the disease. It's when I started seeing the social unrest, Zach, when I started seeing the financial markets and all these things, and that's what brought back childhood trauma to me over financial matters. That's what I listened to as a kid. That's all the fights were about. So even though it's different, right? It's not about having enough money for vacation or food. When I start seeing the world collapse, potentially financially, right? It, it, brought a lot of fear in me i'm just turning the phone off here sorry no worries no worries and then with all the you know the social things black lives matter and and democrats versus republicans or or whatever it was those i didn't realize but those brought up again they triggered childhood things so it wasn't the disease itself it was people acting irrationally, people having double standards, uh, the government taking control. And then I slid into some of these conspiracies more, not slid in, but I started reading them more. Because so many people were talking these big conspiracies, right? So I started reading some of that, and that affected me negatively at all. Anyway, end of the story, I'm doing really well now yeah. during COVID. Uh, I, I've done really well for the past couple of months. No, and I still have my bad days or, you know, bad couple of days, but... Overall, I'm, I'm pretty positive, but I've had to do things to change my behaviors and my thought patterns to pull myself out of depression at the worst case. But I'm just going to go a negative mindset, which is not emotionally healthy. You have mental health, you have emotional health. I, I've been in bad places on both fronts, but took control. Where were you born? Were you born in Alberta? Oh, actually, uh, I'm a... Small town, New Brunswick, Moncton, New Brunswick boy, 50,000 people, 1,200 square foot house, and uh, dad worked for the railway. Wow. Now, yeah. your upbringing, that's why a lot of these traumas are you're revisiting or came up. Is it because of the way you were raised and the way you saw people raised growing up now that they're coming back to you? Well, I'll... I'll answer that in a more generic sense. So we're not really talking about my parents, okay, or my my parents. Although, although I don't mind doing that, but but it doesn't have to be that. So first, if you if you have witnessed what I have, that a lot of the population's behaviors are less than positive, yeah. worse than you would have expected. Sometimes downright pissing you off, right? Oh um, yeah. <laughs> lost some friends during this period. That all. Those behaviors of theirs comes from their undealt with childhood crap. You got to trust me in that. When we talk about one in five people have a mental health issue, that's true, but we're missing the more important point. Four and five people have it too. It just hasn't shown up yet. It doesn't show up for all of us at the same time. I'm going to guarantee you three to four people out of five have trauma from childhood. They don't know about emotional neglect, emotional abuse, physical, whatever. They found ways to survive it, including departmentalizing it and numbing out and all these things, drinking, staying busy, right? Biking all the time, all these things. They think they're okay, but they're not. When COVID hits, their stuff all comes to the surface. So, true colors, true colors. Of true people. colors. 
who goes, but more when they're going, oh, I feel really sorry for that guy. And yeah, let's end the stigma because one in five have mental health. They don't realize they've got it too. It just hasn't shown up. And they, they've had, they had effective ways so far to keep it from affecting them. When COVID hits, a major trauma, that's what this is, is a major trauma for everybody. We now see who was pretty healthy to begin with, balanced, and we see those that weren't. And then we see some that healed, but when these things hit, you go back to where you were. So I had healed a lot, but I got slammed back when, when COVID hits. And and, uh, and so some of the stuff in COVID was because of the way I was raised from Moncton, New Brunswick. But this is where I need to be honest. My parents unintentionally, emotionally abused me sometimes. And that made me one of the best athletes at any sport I played. It made me an Incredible worker for any company that hired me, and it made me one of the best investment bankers. That that had some unintentional stuff too, and that's just because of what they thought was normal in the textbooks today would be called some modest emotional abuse. That's what gets triggered here for me in COVID too, because you can't ever get rid of it. You can recover from it. You can heal from it. And that's why I, I have loving parents, or I did. They both died now, but I love them. We had a good relationship. But I can also go, you know, this is how I healed. When I look at it with today's understanding, I'm pissed off that my childhood was stole a little bit. I'm pushed off that, I'm pissed off that I had to grow up so fast. I'm pushed, pissed off that I didn't get to laugh as much or play as much, right? I'm pissed off that I was working at 13, supporting the family, Right. That's that doesn't mean that that anger, but these are things that, you know, to them was normal and good. And yeah, it gave me great work ethic, Zach. That's it, what also I was made me, it made me a workaholic. That's my first mental health issue that nobody would ever have heard me say until after other things showed up for me. And now I wind my wind things backwards. I got to go, you know, before work, I had other things, but work was my major mental health issue addiction. What was your work hours like? Well, you know, it depends when you start. When I was really young, you know, I never worked at any one thing long, but I basically worked all the time. As a kid, I had three paper routes that started at five in the morning. Then I went to school. Then I worked at a gas station. Then I would go and, and, and uh, do the floors at the Dairy Queen, right? You stay busy. You work hard. That was the work ethic. That's what my dad did. He was also doing it when I realized his his childhood he was like that, staying busy all the time, which I now understand is an anxiety disorder. He was abused as a child. He never dealt with it. He didn't talk about it. So that well, obviously that's how he did it. That's what he expected us to do. Mm. But I, when I, when I got into my first job, you know, I probably worked normal, you know, eight, 10 hours a day, weekends off. Right. But then I studied, I did my professional accounting degree and MBA at night after my BCom. I went, I went from one degree into a job and into two separate degrees at nighttime. And then I eventually went, went back to school full-time for an MBA and then became an investment banker. Tom, what were you running away from, though? What were you running away from? Or what were you trying to prove to somebody or to yourself? That's a, that, that's a, that's a good question. So in a Canadian business magazine did a story on me when I was about 35 and I wouldn't have realized any of this then. And I would have talked about fear of failure drove me. And I wanted to make my dad proud. And I'm just, I'm a perfectionist and I'm this and I'm that. And, and you know, whatever, you know, I love winning. Yeah. 
And, and, and I believed that. I believed it. I was the best living example of self-delusion and denial that I could now see in retrospect. When I crashed eventually, which I don't know how much you know about, but I did crash in some form. And since then, I've learned about myself. What, what, what was I running from? I didn't even know I was running. I didn't even know I was, I, I, I didn't know anything was even wrong with the way I was raised. Okay, not to throw fault or blame, but when I look at it now, in, in categories, because I was raised in what they call a shame-based family. Okay, well, can leave that term and come back to you. Want shame-based family, and that has certain effects on you. Okay, if, if you're a shame-based family, you can go several routes, and one is perfectionism. Right. If you're shame-based and you're you're talked to in a certain way, you have this inner voice that tells you you're not a good person. You're not good enough. You're a bad person. Versus in modern parenting. It's you've done something wrong or that's an inappropriate behavior, not you shouldn't exist as a person. Okay. So with that as a child, without me knowing it, I have a lot of inner feelings that I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable and I shouldn't know them better. And everything's basically my fault. So what I'm running from is getting in shit, being told I've done something wrong. And something wrong, by the way, we're just talking to my fiance about this, who has some similar stuff that she's just learning about. Doing something wrong in my house, that was, I got an A minus instead of an A. And there could have been a couple of A pluses up above them. That's doing something wrong. Doing something wrong, my friends still laugh about, we're playing a hockey team way better than ours. I'm the smallest guy in the team. I'm an average player at best on the top team. We're down 3-1. I get the two goals to tie us. Then by fluke minutes later, I get a chance to score the winner and the goalie saves it. I got you shit all the way home. Trust me, my dad loved me a lot. He didn't know anything better and pushing me that hard. Trust me. me When you need help, I'm there for you. When I say I'm going to do something, I do it. If I take on a project, I'm going to do it so you're happy with it. See, I got all that good too. But it had other negative consequences. So, Whatever I do during the day, even now, it's like it's one, I try to help people and I try to learn about different topics. And, you know, I've been retired for 10 years, but I still feel the need that if I haven't learned something, done something, that there's something wrong. There's, a, there's an inner feeling of unease. So that's one of my things that I have to do. I have to watch every day and kind of go like, how much biking did I do? Because you brought biking up. How much tennis did I play? How many people did I get on the phone with to help? And at some points I go, I've done enough of that. And I've done enough of this. And we're the perfect place to get is, you know what? I don't need to do anything because I'm good enough and I've done enough. 100%. But those are rare for me, Zach. Is, so, it, yeah, is it addiction though? Is it you just want to cut the addiction out in your life? No. Of like getting too addicted and focused on biking. And like you said, you're a workaholic. You just don't want to do that anymore in your lifetime. Well, and I'm not a workaholic anymore. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I, addiction is in me. So, you know, and, and addictions, you know, what does addiction really mean? That's a whole hour's conversation. Oh, yeah. So addiction to me, we, in my terms now, mental health 2021. Mm-hmm. Is everybody has some form of addiction and it could be plural and they, they get worse every year undealt with. 
And when we talk about the big ones, drugs, sex, gambling, alcohol, um, video games now, all these things, okay, work, okay? Where do they all come from? They all come from undealt with childhood trauma, whether it's Theo Fleury who got raped or me that was sent upstairs because I didn't do enough that day or I didn't do good enough, okay? Or, or the kid that's told that he's like, that you're not smart enough or the tone that your parents use when they're talking to you. There's some kind of trauma or abuse that happens. And clearly, physical abuse and, and, and sexual abuse and all that, those are bad. Emotional abuse can be really bad, but it can be really subtle. On a five, six, or seven-year-old, it's still bad. And that's what leads you to be more prone to addiction. So I was prone to be addicted to things. Tom, do you think okay, so, that if so you didn't ahead. have this tough love, you would still be able to achieve some of the things you've been able to do and help so many people if you hadn't had that tough love? Like there's obviously so much negative to it, but there's this bright side of you that came out. Yeah, well, I'm a guy that focuses on the negative to make sure I don't make the same mistake. I'm a guy that focuses on brutal honesty because I was in denial. I'm a guy that talks about his feelings now because I never shared a feeling. I could feel a feeling. So I don't want to make this look really negative. There's a certain real, re, there's a certain reason that I was over the top at everything. There's a certain, then I got to look at why was I so successful and why wasn't enough at 50 million, a hundred million too. Why wasn't that enough for me? And so when I look at all of it, I get to go. I have an addictive personality. Mm. I've been addicted to things that society loves, and, and I've been I've had addictions that are not socially acceptable. Okay, so to me, it isn't stopping the bad one and keeping it. It's actually going back to what you said. What am I running from? What am I afraid to face? What is the pain that I don't realize I have in me? And I've done that all that work. And I've done it, and I continue to do it. And. Uh, and then the more I learn about myself, it actually allows me to help others. And um, so it's not stopping the, the, the addiction. It's actually for me just to get to a point where, you know, I'm happy with myself. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm there a lot. But when you have a mental health issue, typically, or we'll say an addiction, just to talk about that one, there is no standing still, unfortunately. If I don't work on my recovery, if I don't work on my mental health, if I'm not totally honest with you here, I am going to slide backwards to the point where I'm irritable and short-tempered and judgmental and reactionary. And then I'm going to isolate and then I'm going to blame and I'm going to get depressed. Resentment. And then I can blame everybody. And then I can really want to isolate. And that can have an ugly ending, which it did for both my kids. And a lot of other people. I probably have a person at least one a month, maybe sometimes once a week, somebody has just lost a child calling me to find out how to get through it. And then you've got the number of people that call that say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling right. And da 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 da. And I, I go and meet with them. And I look at them and I know you, you're, you're depressed. Like you're like you're down there. This is bad. And they don't even know it. And their doctors aren't even recognizing it, Zach. It's almost like the AA meetings, alcoholics understand alcoholics in a way. We know the struggles of one another. So yeah. Yeah. Was there certain things in your life that you had to cut out to help you recover? Like the noise, for example, it's not always just alcohol or drugs or whatnot. Yeah. Well, for for, for me, my crash, the ultimate people would talk, Oh, Tom Bud's a drug addict. 
Well, the answer is I did it on TV long before people. I'm a drug addict. Wanted the cocaine. I loved it. Best night of my life mm-hmm. at 48, Zach. But my problem wasn't cocaine. It isn't drugs. And it was never alcohol. My problem was me. My problem was I didn't know it, but I didn't like who I was. I had really low self-esteem. And I was ashamed of who I was and who my family was. And that's what I needed to fix. And you know, alcoholics understand alcoholics. And yes, and, but at the end of the day, to me, my recovery and my ability to have peace and joy now, it comes from surrounding myself with people where I can have honest, vulnerable discussions. To me, that is the key. No so bullshit. I, no bullshit. And my friends are like that. Not every conversation, because that's pretty boring too, but I don't want to go out to the bars, have a drink, talk about women, raw, raw sports, talk about how much money. That gets pretty boring to me now, mm-hmm. you know? And so I want to know, like, how, do you, how do you really feel? Tell me. And people do tell me. And, you know, if they feel really, really great, they, maybe I'm going to ask them for some advice. I've always got something I want to know about, right? But you have, you have real conversations. And so when I look at, not only first recovery from, you know, what, what I'll call a drug addiction, that recovery was sharing my feelings, having real friends, which I had none. I had 300 people in a house every Christmas party. I had no real friends, but that's my fault. If I'm not telling anybody who I am and how do I feel, how, do they, how does anybody get close to me? Tom, what was that one side of you that people saw back then when you were, I don't know, before you retired? What were you, who was Tom Budd then? I painted him like a bad guy because I had to almost disown him to recover. Mm-hmm. But actually, he wasn't that bad. He was just out of balance, and that's also the disease. Tom Budd at 30 wasn't the same at 35, 40, 45, and exponentially going off the cliff with his ego totally out of control and an ego out of fear. What, what was the email? like? What was the perception of the general public watching? Yeah, so, 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 a lot of people wouldn't have liked me, and a lot of people would have loved me. And I have the same thing now, Zach. Believe it or not, and I'm actually a pretty good guy now. But right. I still have the same thing. You know, people, people still come out because of what I own, how I look, and, and a perception of what a rich guy must be. But, you know, the bottom line is, what would I have been like in the perception? I would have been considered uptight, closed-minded reactionary, self-righteous, and uh, I wouldn't have been considered compassionate or empathetic at all. But you know what? In the business world and in my circles where you're trying to get ahead, I was a guy that provided access to capital. I was a guy that if I was on your team, you're probably going to win. I was a guy that if you did business with me and, and I provided the service, you knew the service was above average, and I was a fun guy to be around, Zach. I had fun. I lived life big, right? And and I and I and it wasn't all flash. I, I was a guy that worked hard. You asked about my hours. At the end of my career, I would be up by four thirty or five. Uh, I probably wasn't in bed till eleven or twelve. Um, I probably entertained four or five nights with clients out for dinner, out with wine, not to drink because I had to keep the business coming in. But I was also the guy with my hand on the file because when guys were selling their company, if I wasn't. The guy running the file, they didn't want to hire us. They didn't want all my juniors. I had to, I had to run every deal. So I'm running five or ten deals at a time. One year I did 100 deals with me and my group. Unheard of. 
I probably averaged four, maybe five hours of sleep a night. And I did that for years. Wow. And, you know, I, I burnt out. You know, I burnt out. I blew up. It wasn't sustainable. And, and I didn't even enjoy it. It wasn't fun. Mm-hmm. Was it deal flow addicting? Is that what you were dr- going for as well at, in that moment? You know, again, at the time, I wouldn't have known it. It's me going back in rear view mirrors every time I think I got the onion peeled, right? I got the answer. <laughs> I always get a new answer every year. So the, my current view of that, it's, 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 it's different and it grew and it was more than one thing at a time. So first, what it did was it removed the shame of my family of origin. And that was the shame of my dad's family. And that was hard on my dad. So I removed it with my success. So the more success I got, it made me feel like, look, my dad had to quit school, put his, his brother, his sisters through school because of what happened to his house. So he didn't get to go to university. My dad probably smarter than me. So uh, what happened to your dad? If you don't mind me asking. Or what he, happened to the house? His dad burnt it down, passing out from drinking and, Burnt his mom, and she, she was a school teacher. She had to quit work. She was burnt badly. Dad would have been 15 at the time, three other kids. Anyway, that was my dad. You know, he quit high school. He'd already skipped a year, didn't finish, and started working. And he went back and finished high school eventually, but not university. Then he worked himself up and eventually, you know, got to, had a pretty good job with CNR, but you know, didn't get to live the life that he probably could have. Mm-hmm. You know? He didn't dump any of this on me. He didn't even tell me. I've gotten this from his younger sisters that loved him to death, right? So and, he kept uh, all this within himself as a man, right? Yeah, he never said a word, never would. Called his grandfather. You know, this kind of dad, my dad, is why he was good. He hated his dad. I know that. He, he in the end, wouldn't go to his dad's funeral. I made him because I'm 20-some at that point. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, my, I thought it funny. My dad called his dad Charlie. But he took us there as kids every weekend because he was still my grandfather. He didn't hang around, but he took me to his dad, who was an AA by that time, okay? So he never denied me the chance to have a relationship with my grandfather. I, I thought Charlie was a great guy, but I got one I'm calling Grampy, and I got one I'm calling Charlie, and I never knew why till later in life. But part of me being successful was it made me feel like I could live through me, as weird as that is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the better I did, the happier I thought he would be. That was a driving force. But then it gets, it gets to be more than that. Was he, he happy he for me, you? Yeah, but he never needed me to do it. You know, I had this discussion when I crashed. He didn't tell me to go make 10 million, 20 million, 30 million. He didn't need me to do that. Yeah, he was really proud. But I didn't need to keep doing more and more and more. See, my addiction is to the word more. You can apply it to cars, art, any collection, more, more, more. I had $6 million at one point in the top drawer of my desk. Cash? I didn't care about the money. I didn't oh. care about, no, no, they, they were checks, my paychecks. And I just didn't give in. It was just not, it was not the money. It, was, it wasn't the money. It never, it never was the money. That's why I did ethical deals. That's why I didn't take stock in my clients. That's why my advice was unaffected by, by stock ownership. It was pure advice. And I could have made way more money owning cheap stock or boring. I didn't. I kept myself as, as clean as I could. But, but what it was, when you talk about what was the addiction to, it was the power. It was the people knew who I was. It was, 
in a restaurant, people, everybody coming to say hello when you're out on a date. It was the TVs calling you up for an interview. It was the fact that you knew you were wanted, you knew you were needed. Right? Or if you had you something, right? If you had something, people are like, damn, that uh, love just... But, but, but it, it, it's intoxicating. It's like, it's like if you're a single guy and you're worried about having a date, I, I'm in a job where, you know, you had power, you had attention, you had it from your clients, you had it from your parents, you had it from everybody. It's, into- it's, like, it's like a movie star. It's like an Olympic athlete as a top investment banker. I didn't even know what an investment banker was when I took that job. Mm-hmm. But that job was a perfect job for a guy like me. I had ADD, right? You know, I suffered from the, from emotional abuse and I, I needed something to distract myself, right? I can't stay focused so I can multitask, which is perfect for that job. And every time you did a deal, like in business, everybody knew when somebody was raising money. Everybody knew when there was a takeover. So I'm in the heart of all the business news, right? And then I'm, I'm the guy that's been ranked number one, two, or three every year. And I'm, I'm just the guy from Moncton, New Brunswick. And, it, you know, I, I let it, I let it carry me to a, into a new space that's not healthy. I have to admit that. When right? you went back to your hometown, <laughs> were, did they know who you were at that? Did you make a name for yourself, as they call it? <laughs> um, not, not so much in Moncton, because, you know, the one thing about the Maritimes is that what they're proud of all when I grew up, and that's why my dad moved away, is that if you could work six, somewhere for six months and then get pogey, they called it for six months, you were a hero. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have thought what I was doing was really good, you know. But, you know the, the people know, the people from when I grew up in Montreal and Toronto, yeah, people knew what I was doing. I mean, I still have people contact me about my so-called business accomplishments. And you know, that's not what I really want to be known for. And once I crashed, I kind of realized that. But it doesn't mean that I want my life different. And you asked me a question, we, I, I guess we kind of got off on a tangent, but, you know, if my life hadn't been the way it was as a child, would I have been in the same career? Would I have been so successful? But it really doesn't matter because it's kind of like saying to me, you know, you know what if your kids were still, they're, they're not. I, I can't look at life like that. Like, and I actually just don't. It's one of my mental strategies now. I can't change anything in the past. I need to look, learn from it. Don't ignore it. But once I've learned my lesson, I need to move on. I need, the sooner I can get into the now and stay out of the future, the better I am. So because you asked me, I'll answer it. But otherwise, you, you don't do that on a daily basis. Now. I, I don't, just... but I used to. See, for, for a guy that's like me with my mental conditioning. But you're sharp as attack. Go, you're sharp as attack. I'm, I'm always going to go to the back. I'm always going to go back and look at what I did wrong. And once I self-flagellate long enough, now I'm motivated to get going again. But I beat the snot out of myself first without knowing it. Mm-hmm. When I go into the future and I leave the Eckhart Tolle standing out, once I'm now out in the future, for a guy like me, it's not a good future. My brain doesn't actually go to positive. So if I want to think future, it's going to be 70% bad, 30% good. And when I go back, it's not good memories. I'm going to look at everything I've done wrong, everything I should have known, because my brain likes to tell me I'm not good enough. That, that, that addictive dumb brother monkey is there anytime I let it there. Mm. What do you do to silence I, him I'm now? I'm smart enough to know how to get rid of it. I'm smart enough to know that to whatever, but it's not like I, it just happens and I don't have to worry about it again. That's where I call it mental health recovery. Same as addiction, alcoholic, whatever recovery. 
Well, it's self-awareness and working on it daily. Like you said, you can't stay still. It's every single day. Something you have to work on. Yeah. Yeah. That's true with the the one thing I've learned. Every now and then you gotta just do nothing. Every now and then you just gotta go go screw it. I'm 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 having a lazy day. You know what? I'm exhausted and I'm done enough. And I'm whatever. And I and I do that now and I never used to. I now nap every day, Zach. So good. I go lay in that couch and I take a 20 minute what hour, whatever it is, and I'm golden. And I would never allow myself to nap, even if I was exhausted. If I was out with clients till one in the morning, I'd still get up at four because I got to pay the price for being out. You know, I pushed and pushed and pushed. But it had huge rewards, but it took its toll on me physically and mentally. And that's where I could have been just as successful, could have still been wealthy if that's important, could have still done the most deals. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have to get into the red zone like a car, driving your car in the red zone all the time. That engine's going to blow, and that's what I did to myself because I didn't know that more wasn't achievable as a concept, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. My major disease was chasing more. The high. Anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now- you know, if we get into, like, the, the, the physiology of, of some of these things, you know, People that say that I'm serotonin deficient or, or some other deficiencies in my brain chemistry because of the emotional stuff going on as a kid. So that means I actually have to do car racing, big game hunting, and all these other risky things, racing my, my bike. That, that's where I'm getting the boost that everybody else already has. And when I'm not like that, and I'm in a slightly depressive state without knowing it. And maybe I've always suffered from just this mild grade depression, which that, I'm going to say I think a lot of men do, but they're afraid to look at it or talk about it. Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? You know, I can just, I'll, I'll just speak for myself because it's the easiest. I was told straight out that my feelings didn't matter. That would, but if I had a feeling, I was told not to have them, so that means that feeling's incorrect. And then I was told to get over it right away, and if that didn't work, I have it way better than they had it in their childhood. So you learn to shut up, or you're basically ostracized, criticized, or shamed. That was me. And then there, there's the other one where, you know, parents or guys do it, toughen up. You know, you got to stay strong for your brother. Oh, don't let them see your weakness. They'll be all over you. So we're afraid to show our feelings. Mm-hmm. And and for me, again, it, it comes down to life death. It took if, if for me to beat addictions means I need to actually talk about my feelings, mm-hmm. most of which I didn't even know I had because I had them shut off. So I couldn't feel anything. And I didn't know that. That's why I was so good in hockey and fights. Or if there was a bar fight or something, yeah. break a chair off me. I don't feel it. They couldn't tell you. You thought feel, feel flurry was tough. It was the same. Because our upbringings are similar, except for the sexual abuse. Okay? So I had no feelings because I knew how to shut it off. And I was in a state of being shut off for 20-some years. Tom, did you ever cry? Did you ever cry in those years? Like alone? and joked around the dinner table where how the strap would come out and they'd beat me. And I'd laugh at them. Teachers included. Teachers. I'd laugh. And then the kids would all. And I learned how to show no pain. Oof. And I did it. And now I cry every every day, not because I want to, because 
when I feel the feelings and I go to shut them off, I don't let that happen. And that was the first few years. I feel the feelings. I want to shut them off. Now I feel the feelings. I go, great. I'm human. I just let them come. It was hard on my friends when my kids died because I would cry anywhere and everywhere and they didn't know how to handle that. And then, you know, in Cologne now, it's almost like, yeah, you go to Starbucks, you see Tom Bud probably cry or, you know, other people cry because they're comfortable. You know, it's like they're normal. It's no, it's normal, but people are still afraid of being judged negatively or called weak. I'm going to go when, when somebody's like, you started off the conversation, you gave me a feeling right away. I noticed that. Well, great. He's not afraid to tell me he's angry. You know, and that's good. That's another People don't want to say when they're angry. People don't want to tell their mates when they're hurt. They don't want to, they don't know how to approach it. Go, you know, I don't want to bring it up, but you know, you probably didn't mean this, but when you said this or did that, it really disappointed me or I really was sad. And people don't want to say that. How, how do you fix somebody else's behavior if you don't tell them how you felt? Communication. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But I didn't have any of that. At 48, Zach, I had none of this. That's why when I'm talking to young people, they go, oh, I didn't know any of this. I don't know. Hey, guys, at 48, you wouldn't have recognized me. I had all the good I have now, but I had a lot of bad. Now I got tools and skills and behaviors that I had stuffed away. So whatever I was like as a young kid from the age of eight to that 14, that Tom Bud that everybody liked, that's the guy that was giving all his money away, Zach. That's the guy that was out making money, selling things, entrepreneur, and I gave it all away. And that's why Tom Bud now, out of the investment banking, blah, 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 that's what I enjoy doing. It's not something new, which it can be for people. It was like that as a kid. And peace of mind is almost like being childlike again. That's what peace of mind feels to me. Take away all those things that were weighing you down. And not always trying to worry if somebody's going to like me. Not wonder if I'm going to say something wrong or what if they don't want to be your friend or what do I need to say to get the job? Screw that. Tom, when you you crashed or in those times where you needed people, did you realize who was around and all those friends, like you said, at those Christmas parties, 300 people, who was your real friend? You know? I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have thought of it in those terms when I crashed because it took me a while to accept my crash, accept my problem. And when I first crashed, I knew that I had to hide this from everybody. So I had one of my key partners um, cover for me at work. And I got the place that I went to get help, allow me some flexibilities. And I basically co-ran the firm from a rehab center. And I got permission to leave every couple, every 30 days, and I would fly out so the public would see me. And I knew the goal was when I get through this program, I'm going to be fine and I'm not going to tell anybody. That was the goal I had for the first 30 days. On day 90, and I kept extending because I loved it and I loved it and I loved it. On day 90, I got on a plane and I flew into Toronto and called the board meeting. And I went in and said, I'm a child of an alcoholic family. I've been emotionally abused. I'm ADD. I'm a drug addict. And whatever else I had on my list of flaws. And I'm going to tell you half the room, it wasn't like an applause, but it kind of was, but tears. um, Because they wish they could do what I just did. The other half, Zach, 
I could hear the knives being sharpened under the boardroom table. Oof. And it's no coincidence that I resigned two years later because they didn't like the new Tom Bud that called in and did Zoom calls. They didn't like the new Tom Bud that went, I gave you my answer. I don't have to explain it. And well, or, or hey, Tom, you used to this, you used to do that. That's, I, well, that's not matter. I'm, I'm different now. Doesn't mean that I wasn't as good. They just weren't used to dealing with me who didn't put up with their crap and their manipulations and their lies. And that's, you know, I used to think I didn't lie, Zach, because my guys over there lied 10 times and theirs were big and I only lied three and mine were little. That means it's seven to zero when you net it out. No, Zach, I lied. I lied and, 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 and when I used to be black and white, I was getting gray. And I changed that starting right away and recovered it because that, that was the only way for me to stay emotionally healthy. Well, my partners didn't really like that attitude. They didn't like this kind of discussion. And that's the re- that's one of the major reasons I quit. Probably for the better, looking yeah. back now. <laughs> well, it was kind of like I was never as greedy. And, you know, we took the stock say from one buck to 24 bucks. And I sold out from 12 to 24 and then they dropped, and I had to sell some on the way down again to 14. And a lot of people laughed in the firm because, you know, they thought I was foolish selling out and uh, made a lot of money on that one pass over two years from taking it public. And, and, and the stock now is less than a dollar again. And a lot of those guys didn't sell. So, you know, pigs get slaughtered. And, and I was in a business where, you know, it was very competitive and, um, you know, ethics sometimes were questionable and greed was definitely rampant. And I didn't go into the business for that reason. So, you know, as much as people go, I was in it for the money, I wasn't. But it did, it did fit my egoic needs. Oh, you're in it for power. There's a different high you're in it for. Yeah. Looking yeah. Well, I see it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you, you had a nickname you had said in your video, your nickname, they used to call you Ramber or Rambo or? What did they? Rambo. Rambo. Yeah. Why did they call so, you that? Well, you'd have to Google Rambo. And that, you've heard of Sylvester Stallone? Of course. Yeah, he actually looks a little bit like you. So <laughs> Sylvester Stallone made these movies where he was like a Vietnam guerrilla warfare. His name was Rambo. And he went in and Rambo could take out anybody. With one, with one guy, Rambo, he could take out hundreds. And if Rambo took on somebody, you know, the, you know whatever. So... In, in business and in, in, in the takeover world, you know, I was known as Rambo or Rambud. It was actually Rambud. It was from the Rambo movie. My oh, name was Rambud. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. So Rambud, and it was from the movie Rambo. And because uh, I took no prisoners. And I, and I was a guy that, you know, with my upbringing, uh, I was a fair fighter. But if somebody wants to street fight, I can street fight. And if somebody's going to fight dirty, I'm going to fight dirty. And, you know, if people are going to start slagging my client in a takeover in the press, you know what? I know how to get stuff and I'm going to do it too. And after a while, you know, people were fearful. They weren't going to mess. You, you did know? eye for eye. Yeah. I never, I, yeah, I didn't swing first and I never came from the back. But if somebody wanted to, you know, if, if it's going to get messy, uh, you probably want to have Tom Budd on your side. And some people would hire me in advance to let the street know Bud works for us. And that sometimes kept them from having a takeover made on them. Tom, when you said people were sharpening their, their knives under the boardroom, 
What yeah. was it like seeing that transition? Because you had already been in the business for so many years. You should have been like, they should have been supportive, but they weren't. You did your homework. I, I, besides Mike Timms at Peters & Co., I'd say I was in the business longer than any other Canadian investment banker. Most guys are probably five to 10 years. I was 24. So the guys, the guys that would have been sharpening their business would have been younger guys. Uh, and, you know, it's greed. And they, they you know, it, it's hard. Like when it comes to, to, to like what's somebody's bonus, you know, and what's somebody's effort and what did they contribute? Most people always think they did more than they really did. And when you're the guy that brought in the deal and you got to divide it up, nobody's ever completely happy. So, you know, when I'm, I'm, make, I'm making 15, 16 million a year at this point, right? Wow. I'm a how guy old are you at this point? You know, well, I would have been, my, I probably was about 45, 46, 47. Probably and you're netting 15 or 16 a year? Uh, well, like grossing, not net after okay. tax. But, you know, my, my paychecks would have been 15, 16 million for several years in a row in and around that. And most years over 10. I was paid more than a CEO of a bank. People didn't know that. But it's, it's in the prospectus. So that's why I can say when we went, when we took it public, the institutions all were going, well, is Bud staying or leaving? Because I was 20, 30% of the net income of the firm alone. And in any given, in any given year, I'm pretty sure that I was doing a hundred million in net income out of the office. Me and my group did a hundred million. So what's that worth if you went public? That's like a fucking billion. Sorry for the swear. No, no. I, yeah. You can swear on this. I swear a lot. Yeah. So yeah. So, yeah anyway, yeah, put this, put the swear button on. So yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, so what it was it like for me, I obviously knew people were like that. That's why when I knew I had a problem, I knew I had to hide it. I had a different view 90 days later and I, and I didn't think I'd care and I didn't. I was free. I was free. Once they started on that, I'm still smart enough to know I was never going to get pushed out. Mm -hmm. I also know I never wanted to be accused of hanging on longer. And there was people that thought they could do better. There was people that wanted to take over da da da, da. And I let them know what, what it would cost. And, um, and I also knew I was, a, a divorce was coming. I wanted to be with my kids. So this is all going to work out. And, some people were offering me, hey, just stay in the firm. We'll give you $8 million just for your name. Zach, nobody's worth that. And I knew that then. If I'm going to get out of my ego, I'm not worth $8 million. And that sent me the signal, this market's crazy. This investment business banking business can't keep up. And I can't sell my stock up. I'm in the company. So it was all like a good timing. And they didn't want to give me the price. And I said, fine. I just stopped going to board meetings. And one day I got a phone call and they're all at the board meeting and I'm out playing tennis. And uh, they gave me what I wanted, finally. And I went over to the board meeting, signed it, and resigned. That was a patience game right there. At its yeah. yeah. Tom, yeah. And, 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 of course, I got, to, I got to sell my stock all the next month, and I sold it all at about 14 bucks. Well, what was it about you that made you so successful at what you did in business, if I was going to ask? Like, what was that traits of Tom that people saw that really worked? So this is where you, you sound egotistical, but I'm going to say I'm not. We, Mike Weckerly was the best trader I've ever seen. Mike Weckerly was incredible on our trading desk. When we would talk succession planning, how do we groom a guy? I, he, there is no other Mike guys. You can't, what he has, there's, there's no words for it. The combination, there's no words for that guy. And we, there was five of us like that in the firm. So in corporate finance, I was the Mike Weckler in, in trading. 
So they all, you're not going to find another Tom Bunn. And that's why when I left, the Calgary office crashed. Crashed. <laughs> really. What, what was I, it about you, though? What did you so, do? So, so what was it? So what was it? So what I try to describe it, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume you feel an energy, a passion, mm-hmm. um, thrill. I was engaged in life. I made people enjoy life. I made people want to try to do their best. When I, when I took things on, I wasn't lying about how important it was to me. I would stay awake at night worrying about not making that client happy. Even if it meant my family not seeing me. I just had this drive, this dedication, this commitment, this loyalty. And I also had the ability to take highly complex um, problems and synthesize them down into one simple phrase. So that's why I did a lot of the first of this, or the only of that, or that's never been done before because I watch all these lawyers and corporate finance guys. You gotta remember, everybody's afraid of making a mistake. Everybody's afraid of being criticized. Everybody's afraid of getting shit. So am I, except I'm always thinking about it. I eventually think, okay, I know enough. I feel that I can make a decision. So I never get frozen in the analysis, but I do lots of it. But at a certain point, I know how to pull the trigger. But I could listen to people for hours talking about why you can't do this and the Securities Commission that, the tax laws this, and da 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 da. And I go, okay, guys, we know how come it's never been done, and we know all the reasons why it can't, but we're supposed to be here to get it done. Personally, if you want to do it, here's how you do it. Stop whining. We need to do this, this, and this. And I know it's never been done, but let's do it. Let's let's let somebody tell us we're wrong. And if I had the right client and the right lawyer, Way we go, and most of the time we got it done. But nobody else, a lot of people weren't willing to do that. You know, I, I took stances when nobody else did. The same way as I've spoken out about COVID. You know, I I think they've been wrong on the mass thing. I think they're dead wrong on allowing protests of two hundred people, and yet you can't go to a funeral, you can't go to your graduation, you can't go to a Christmas function with six people in it. So we're locked down. Yeah, we're locked down. And all of a sudden, this Black Lives Matter thing happens. And oh, great. Everyone's allowed out. What happened, millennials? You guys are, just, you know, well, that, that was one that got me mad. So oh, well, the, here, here's, here's the Tom Bottom investment banking. I threw a huge party in April at my house in Kelowna. Yeah, I invited all the neighbors and, and everybody else. And, and people but we're all, you know, we're, cut, we're all kind of unraveling. And we, we put a bunch of signs up and we had a protest against the, uh, in, in uh, well, I can't remember the words I used, but basically saying I'm not buying the rules that we're using for COVID and I'm going to protest them. So I did a protest in my backyard, sanitizers out front, gloves, mask, security guard, and I had probably 200 plus people. No, it would have been 200 because I wanted to go with the same number as protests. It would have been 200 max, but it was more than the 50 they allowed us in a household. And I put it all over Instagram. Yeah, I'm and, I, and, I'm, and I'm okay that that might piss people off. But I'm, all I'm trying to say is, you know, I don't care that nobody else does it. I don't care what that rule says. That rule's not consistent with what they're doing over here. No, so no, I use that, that was my personality as an investment banker. And you only need to do that once a year to have people notice you and then want to hire you. You can't do that every week because you'll crash. But every now and then you see an opportunity to be bold. You see an opportunity to be different. You see an opportunity to actually stand up and go, you know what? I don't agree. Mm-hmm. And I made a career out of doing that probably once a year, once every couple of years at some major point. And then I knew how to use the newspapers. I could use the press. 
Now tell me about that. That's a pretty cool story. <laughs> How does that well, work? Because this is before social media. So this is. Yeah. Yeah. It was before social media. And most of the times, and again, the banks don't want their vice presidents or their young entrepreneurs to be talking to the press. Cause you know, the press always misquotes here, the, or, or whatever. And you know, it's, it's, it's so, so in the big banks, they don't let any of their guys talk. And basically if, if the newspaper wants a comment from bank, it's bland and boring. So mm -hmm. I'm with smaller firms working for them. And, uh, you know, um, I would notice what went on and we had rules about who could talk to the press and, 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 you know, we had to follow certain things, but a lot of times people got misquoted. Um, they got taken out of context and somebody got mad and some client was whatever. So when the press used to call me, I did it differently. I said, I'm going to give you the real juice. I'm going to give you the stuff that people talk about, but if you screw me, you don't give me a chance to read the article before it goes out. You're never getting anything from me again. So if I could get somebody to agree with that, I'd give them some pretty juicy stuff so I could, people love to talk to me because I gave them stuff that other people wouldn't. And then I get to read it though. So I could change it and manipulate it. So it made me look the right way. Still gave them the juice. I still knew who I was going to upset, but I didn't upset a lot of other people unintentionally because they misquote me. Okay. So I had that, you know, you, you got to watch it. I got burnt the odd time, but then that guy didn't get me again. And then the person that hasn't burnt me, I'm calling them up saying, hey, you want a good story? So I was feeding them. They would call me when they needed something on someone else. And uh, but I, I, I got to do it my way. And then, you know, when I needed help on a takeover bid and I needed the story run a certain way, I could get that to happen. That's power. And so, finest. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so the the the. the so like a, a Claudia Gattano, or the, the person that's the chairman of, uh, of USC now, um, he was married to a guy in the investment business. I can't remember. Was it Elizabeth? Deborah Yedlin. Deborah used to write about me all the time. But, you know, we had or Andrew Willis for the Globe and Mail, right? Um, Barry Critchley at the Financial Post. These are guys that let me read the article, and they didn't do that for anybody else. And what would an article title be, for example, like? Tom's doing this again, or? No, no, it, it would be sort of like right now, like, you know, the stuff going on with Reddit. Yep. So picture somebody wants to write about that. And they've got a guy like Tom Budd, who's the investment banker in the high tech business or whatever, okay, social media business. Mm -hmm. They would call me to go, hey, this is what we're hearing on Reddit. This is what so-and-so, and they're trying to explain it this way. If we got this right, if I knew the real story nobody wants to talk about, I'd give it to them. I'd expose the Reddit and the people behind it. Uh, okay. So they'd love that. Or if they had a, if they had a, if there's, if there's somebody that's criticizing the, you know, the, the, um, the uh, premier of Alberta for what he's doing on the lockdown and they've got a bunch of people saying negative stuff, they would sometimes call me and go, well, what do you think is right? I'd actually go, well, tell me who's saying that and I'll give you something on them. And I'd give them a cross quote, right? Stuff like that. Gosh, that's pretty cool. Do you, what's your thoughts? I mean, you've never seen this and no one has about what's happening with GameStop and all that on Reddit. Shorting the stock. That's a long discussion. All I can say is, you know, we have one of the best trading desks in Canada. Yep. And at a certain point in our lifetime, we hired teams of algorithm specialists and that did give us an edge. Trust me, we were pro traders. So we're using our money in the market and we're making lots because of our algorithmic specialist. 
but we got our butts handed to us too once the market corrected and built up and whatever. And, you know, the, the, it's, it's pretty phenomenal what they did. They'll repeat it a couple of times, but to me, it's no different than the old gold promoters that got in first, promoted it to their friends, and they were out long before everyone else. And that's all that's happening on these stocks. So somebody's going to get hurt bad, and there's going to be a group of guys for a while that are going to make some money because they have a following. Nope. And they're going to get in, and they're going to get out long before you buy. Yeah, and people are holding on, and they're going to get bit. They're going to get killed. Um, I, have a, I, have a, I have a same thing in the investment business, and it's why I, I never made a lot on one thing, but I never went to zero on anything. Yeah, no. Tom, so. Things get slaughtered. Oh, yes. Hands down. You've seen it many times, and many people. Yes. Yeah. Tom, so it's 4.08 here. Are, do you have a little bit of time? Because I wanted to. Oh, yeah. Or we can do yeah, a yeah. part two, yeah. or you have time right now? No, no. Whatever you want. Whatever yeah, you let's want. do it, man. Um, so the next step is I wanted to get in, obviously how we met through Rundle and yep. your boys. Yeah. Who is Peyton and who is Dylan? Who are those boys? We can start there. Like who, because you don't know, or who are they when you talk to me? Talk to you and to everyone else. They were the source of the most pleasure I could ever have. And they're the reason for the most pain you can ever imagine. My boys were totally different. Mm -hmm. You know, and until suicide hit, I didn't really think suicide was possible. It's another one of these, you know, yes, you're just close to it. It can't happen to me. It won't happen to me. And because I was in recovery, I was raising my kids way better than I would have otherwise. And, you know, I come through a bad divorce and, um, um, the way that I parented my kids with Dylan, who was the youngest, the less influenced during the marriage, he was always a fan of his dad, and that just grew. Aiden was older. He wouldn't have necessarily, you know, he wouldn't have ranked me as the number one parent at the time of the divorce, and he would have had resentments for a few years, and I can't change that, and that's okay. You know, but as time went on, and I had lots of time between 8 and 19, you know, whatever it was about me that was different or maybe he was the same, but he didn't see it. Him and I had a great relationship and he shared openly with me as much as he shared with anyone to my knowledge. And, um, but, um, you know, Dylan was a impulsive, smart ass in your face, six, one at 14 mini Tom, Bud. He was a good volleyball player, a good basketball player. He played three musical instruments, top math student, and could fly my jet co-pilot at 14. Oof. And he, he let his mom and everybody else know how much he loved his dad every day. And sometimes that's a good idea. Sometimes it's not. Peyton was a quiet, the first, my first son. And I, the bond is special for some reason never worried at all about Dylan. I always had a little worry about Peyton. He was quieter. But, you know, when it came to sports, you know, Peyton was very competitive and very tough. You know, I was just talking to his teacher today. He sent me some pictures of them. But, uh, you know, Peyton was a great basketball player and Peyton was a great volleyball player. And Peyton as a, as a big guy, uh, you know, he was the fastest 100-meter runner at his school for many years. Mm-hmm. 
not as smart as his brother his brother would rub it in his face but you know he was solid he was a solid student you know if you know b pluses to a's you know at rundle was he soft-spoken uh, soft or softer? Uh, yeah, he, 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 yeah, you know, Dylan was in your face with the yappy and he'd get you going. You know, Dylan was going to get the snot kicked out of him by somebody. Peyton was a very sensitive kid, very gentle, didn't say, didn't say a lot, kept everything to himself. And I didn't realize how much, like, off the map, kept to himself. And, uh, no, but in, in his school, he had a lot of good friends and he's liked it. And he, and he, he, he when he, he was with a small familiar group, he, he was, you know, pretty outgoing. And, um, you know, if I, if I look back, you know, Dylan, we're going to get it. Dylan was impulsive. He had ADD. He was impulsive and he had some emotional issues. So just leave at that. He was in counseling. He eventually came back to live with me for a few months. I got him in counseling right away. But his impulsivity took him down. He got hurt by a girl. His impulsivity, his lack of maturity, all that, bang, in that moment, and he took his life. Mm-hmm. You know, Peyton, you know, this is where the person I didn't get it, Peyton being quiet and reserved and, you know, you know, respectful was worse than that. Peyton, for instance, never told anybody outside of his, the school that his brother died. When Peyton went to university a year later, he didn't tell anybody he ever had a brother. Wow. Um, when him and his friends uh, came out to visit me um, the year after Dylan died, they're all out having a guy's trip at my house. You know, I took them all off to the side to ask about Peyton and ask how he's doing and, and you know, counsel them to how to talk to him. And they all said he's fine, no problem. And, you know, they said, you know, they try to bring it up and he doesn't, you know. Um, when I, when I, after he died, I talked to the school counselor to find out what the heck was going on. The school counselor said they hardly ever talked about Dylan because he wasn't comfortable. I got my own series of questions about that. But, you know, okay, so he's not talking to his friends. He's not talking to the counselor. And, you know, him and his mom didn't like the counselor they went to. So I know that's one of the reasons Peyton didn't go back. I don't want to talk about the ex. That's, it's their, their business, but. No, no, Peyton didn't go to counseling. I need to go to counseling still, Zach. So I got a quiet kid, reserved, da-da-da-da, maybe not as confident as I thought, and then he loses his brother. And that's where it all comes in. He was depressed, and I missed it. And I was depressed. He was depressed, and I missed it, and so did everybody else. And when I say I missed it, I kept asking. I kept checking with the university. I kept, because I worried about it, but because everybody told me it was okay, I thought it was okay. So when Peyton took his life, I was totally caught off guard. Tom, how did you how did you find out about Dylan? Were you at home and you just heard something and you're like, oh, sh- fuck. Like, you know, what the heck happened? So do, do, do you want the two or three minute version of this? Is that what you want? If you want to. Up to you. It's as long as it's, like, well, it's, it's, it's part of the reasons I have trauma. I just did a post yeah. because uh, the weekend I talk about my face. You'll, mm-hmm. I don't know if this happened your day. You'll see my arms flail or you'll see my chin go out or my face tightens up. I've lost control in my nervous system. That's what trauma does. Trauma. It sent a lightning bolt through my body with Dylan. So Dylan broke up with a girlfriend Two days before he died, I found out about the day before he died, and then he was a little off, and 
And that the day that he died, he called me from school asking if he could stay late to play with some friends. I thought that was great. Go ahead. When he came home, he asked if we could go to a movie or watch a movie. I went, yes. And then I saw him get on his phone. And he's totally caught up on the phone. And, da, 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 and I didn't pay a lot of attention, but it was more than normal. And it was in a room different than normal. And he's like really going at it. And, da, da, da. and then he asked me, are you, are you going to go for a, a, a bike ride or anything? And I went, yeah, I, I, can, I can go for I'll, I'll go for a bike ride. He goes, yeah, because I want to play the drums. I want to practice my drums. I don't want to bother you. And I went, okay, well, then I'll go for a bike ride. This is where it's messed up. I went for a bike ride. When I got home, he wasn't there. Okay. Not like him to not be there. So I texted him, didn't hear. And again, this is, I'm not going to get mad. I'm texting him and I'm thinking about it. An hour goes by, two hours go by. I check around the house a little bit, nothing. It's not up in his room. He's not in the playroom. He's not in the computer room. And um, I'm starting to panic. And now I'm starting to think about how I'm going to deal with him when, he, when I do find him and, you know, the right parenting and, I started driving around looking for him, and I thought I saw somebody leaving the house in a van. I chased these people down. I'm screaming. I, I forced them off the road, thinking they had my kid, and they didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm out of control at this point. That was three hours later, so I go home, and I, I think I'm going to have to call the police or do whatever. And for some strange reason, I thought, I wonder if he's gone for a nap in the guest wing of the house. And um uh, I just started walking down there and opened up one of the doors. And I remember opening the door up and I going, Oh shit. Somebody, what's that? Somebody spilled some jam or something. Cause it was red jammy. And I walked around the corner and there was Dilly there. And he blowed his head off with a shotgun. When I saw him, it was like, I literally, was knocked off my feet backwards. It was a physical bolt of lightning go through my body and literally knocked me over. And then all I can remember doing is screaming and running out of the house, calling 911 to come help me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something nobody ever should see in their life. Holy shit. You don't want to see what I saw. And the worst part is, is that I, I felt guilty running out of the house and not making sure he was alive. Like, how stupid is that? It was physically, but I went and picked him up. And... Yeah, it's ugly. You found out it was because of the girl and his impulsive decisions? Oh, it was on his phone. Mm-hmm. But here's where I, you know, I've got to make sure that I don't... It's kind of like parents will go, well, it won't happen to my kid because... I wasn't an investment banker or it won't happen to my kids because I don't live in a big house or it won't happen to my house because I didn't do drugs or it's everywhere. Okay. So that the, or Dylan will go, people will go, Oh, he broke up for a girlfriend. Oh, that won't happen to my kids. He doesn't have a girlfriend. That was the last item in a perfect storm of a child that's already prone to depression and suicide that crippled him. Okay, so it it isn't because he had a girlfriend. It's because the way he was raised made him feel a certain way already, which when you add in the insult that she doesn't love me, and now she's texting how she never really liked him anyway, and he does she doesn't like the way he kisses, and and she's gonna go up with her his friend now, all at 14, already with some emotional issues. 
it's not the girlfriend. It's how his brain interpreted that. And in that moment, he couldn't live with that pain. So, and you got to remember, Dylan had already had two thoughts like that prior to this at his mom's house. It wasn't, there was no attempt, but there was a discussion of a thought twice before this. So there had already been two thoughts. Yeah, you know, and again, when he came to be with me, I knew and it was safe for her friend to be with me. And we had discussions on, if you, do you want me to keep asking? So I'd be asked Dylan, any, any, any dark thoughts? That was the, the phrase, dark thoughts. No, nope, no, I'm good. How's it going? Da-da-da, great. Da-da-da. Had him with a counselor. Really liked the counselor. Mm-hmm. Counselor said he wasn't suicidal. He didn't have to go anymore. He chose to keep going. Great. See, that's the, the right attitude. And uh, eventually I said, yo, Dylan, do you want me to keep asking you every week? Do you have any dark thoughts? Or are you, you know, you'll let me know if you're having something. And he said, he promised me he would. Well, guess what? I made a mistake. Shouldn't have relied on that. It doesn't mean he would have told me. But see, here's when you get it complicated. You think it's the girl. I just remembered something again because I, I need to help people out. So three months after the autopsy, I got the coroner's report finally, and I just reading through it, Dylan had 42 cuts on his arms. Fresh, not old. They were all within the last 48 hours of his death. All of them, both arms. And this whole time he's been with you talking earlier and all this, and you had no idea. Wow. But he did, the the cutting happened the night he broke up with the girl. He was in such pain. Mm -hmm. But I remember him coming down. I didn't know he would cut himself. Nobody said anything, but he was cutting himself. But I remember the the day before he died, he came down and said, hey, Dad, you have those those wrist straps of yours that you use when you sprain yourself playing tennis? I'm like, yeah, what do you mean? Oh, I fell down the stairs and sprained my wrists. I didn't even think about it. So he wrapped his wrists. And again, at school, some of the kids saw that and they wondered, but they didn't want to say anything. And then one kid actually saw the cuts through the bandage because this kid has emotional issues from the suicide. He saw the cuts. He asked Dylan and he didn't believe Dylan and he didn't say anything to the teacher. But it's not that kid's fault. Just like it's not that girl's fault. Nor your fault, Nor your fault. no, I, 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 I got over that, Zach, and I'm going to tell you here, it's you know, probably the only reason I'm here, if I'm honest with myself. If I hadn't been a grateful addict, if I hadn't done the work to realize I was a workaholic and I collected things and I acted out in the inappropriate ways and my personality was out of balance and, and I resorted to, un- if I hadn't gone into that program of recovery to change in a positive way, I would have blamed myself for that death. Because I wouldn't have been as good of a dad, but I also wouldn't have known how to look at myself going, you know, I wasn't perfect, but I was damn good. And I know my kids love me and I, I don't let my voice in my head tell me otherwise like a try someday. You can't do that to yourself. No, of course. And you know they loved you. Tom, come on. Well, Dylan was easy because he, he was nonstop talking about his dad. Dylan was the easy one. Peyton wasn't. But luckily for me, he left a journal. Peyton did or did Dylan Peyton did. Yeah. Tom, so, so how, how many years later did Peyton take his own life? Was it a few years later? Two years later, almost to the date. And he never said anything and he wouldn't go to counseling with me. He wouldn't, wouldn't go with his mom. He was living with his mom and, and he decided to go to Victoria for a school and, and he wasn't doing well. 
and that I think shamed him a little bit. He wasn't doing well, and he he, he was depressed. He didn't admit it. He was isolated. He was eating all his meals in his room. He wasn't going out. Anyway, we got that turned around in second term, and he was happy. He was making friends, and you know, we went to pick him up at the end of the school year. He introduced us to his friends, and he's joking around, and he was going to go start a job with his mom, and on the wanted to stop off at my house on the way there. And him and his mom actually we went out together. We had kind of like reconciled a little bit, and um, we went out together to get him. And you know, she was worried about him all year, and so was I. But he seemed good, and. Um, when he first got home, he had asked me, you know, where was Dylan's airsoft pistol? And um, I said, it's up in his room. And he went, no, it's all I've already checked. It's not up in his room. Where's all his airsoft guns? I said, well, I'd probably put it in the gun safe then. So he said, well, can I get them? So I went into my office, got the combination, went out, went into the gun safe, and that's where they were, the airsoft guns. And all of my guns, by the way. Yeah. Shot, shot at the door, went back, ended that. So... Nobody's going to convince me that Peyton didn't already know when he came to my house, he was going to kill himself. That's how he baited me. See, Dylan knew the combination because Dylan was a marksman. Dylan was an air cadet when he was in Calgary. He was a top shot. He could outshoot all of us on a gun range. So Dylan handled the guns. Just like he handled the plane. He was mature that way. So Dylan had the combination of the gun safe. Peyton didn't, but he found a way to get it for me without me even thinking of it. So now he's got the combination and he got his marks. They weren't good. I saw him go downhill. He eventually told me about his marks. I told him I didn't care. I acted like I didn't care. I'm, I'm trying to actually take him to the Edmonton Oilers hockey game. The playoffs are on with his grandfather and uncle. And it's okay, Peyton, like, big deal. You got some bad marks and you flunked the course. You know, it's, they're not going to kick you out and we'll get you going. And if they do kick you out, I'll get you back in. Whatever, no big deal. And, he changed his mind. He didn't want to go to the game anymore. He said he wanted to play basketball at home with his friends. And I kept pushing him and he didn't want to. So fine. I went for a bike ride and all of a sudden my phone rang and he asked me how long I was going to be. I knew right then he was going to kill himself. Right then I knew. I raced home as fast as I could, whipped into the house and he wasn't there. I saw his phone on his bed and I went, fuck. I run downstairs, go to the separate part of the house. You got to go outside into a locked room. And sure enough, the gun safe door is wide open and a gun's gone. I called my brother-in-law to come help me. I'm in a panic. We had to find him before he did anything, but we didn't. Just sitting there as calm as could be, staring sitting against the wall. And, and he shot himself as well with a shotgun? And I'm not saying he shot himself. I'm not saying what he used. No. But he took his own life. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing. And I'm, you know, based on his journal. Yeah. The journal talked about, journal at Christmas time talked about, is this all there is to life type language? Mm -hmm. You know, by February or January, February, it talked about, you know, people worried about Dylan and talking about Dylan when he's the one that they should know, you know, uh, he would have already killed himself by now, except he worried about hurting me and his dog and his mom. 
and you know on his computer he had looked up the various ways to kill yourself that are the least painful you know by now i found out how you track stuff so i had people go through his computer and universities and i found essays where you know in his english essay in the first term was all about suicide and he never talked about his brother and in the second term it talked about the coincidence of a second suicide amongst siblings in the Aboriginal community, which is 50%, by the way. So if a kid takes their life in the Aboriginal community, the 50% chance the other sibling's gonna kill himself. Not that high in ours, but it goes way up. And of course, Aiden was depressed. There's no doubt about it for at least four to six months. And you know, in that depression, you don't think clearly and you're confused. And so. Wow, Tom. Yeah. In that moment, how did you, what were you going through? Like another kid, another person? It's different. Dylan's, Dylan's was, a, everything's fine. It doesn't exist. You know how you have part of your, 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 your nervous system alerts you to things, that sense right. you have, that ability. And because it works most really well, when I walked around the corner, mine clearly failed or it wasn't equipped for that. So I didn't get any pre-warning like the parents goes, hey, how are you? Good. Are you sitting down? Uh, no. Should I be? Is anybody there with you? I uh, got to talk. You pre-warn yourself when you get that kind of a phone call or you see evidence of something. I walked around the corner never thinking of this. And all of a sudden, what I saw is horrific and death. So that lightning bolt. I've never, I don't think any, it's hard. It, just, it was, it, it, it's just so bad. Payton's was just as bad, but different because now I knew from the minute he made that call, what he was going to do, there was no doubt. So I had to live with the, that, that fear. He's going to, he's going to, I got to save him. I got to save him. That panic, that, that whatever. Tom, we were bike riding and he called you. What did he say? Was he like, dad? He, he asked me, hey, hey, dad, how are you? Good. Um, uh, and, and I don't remember the exact conversation, oh, but the call was to basically ask me, hey, dad, how long are you going to be before you get home? And I remember Peyton, I love you, Peyton, I love you, and he hung up. He, he was called to make sure that I wasn't going to interrupt him or he'd tell me he loved me, he told me he loved me or whatever it was. But Tom, what made you in your mind think this is a problem saying if some, you know, I guess if you didn't have Dylan's first incident. Because Dylan... It, 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 are you asking me how I knew for sure that he was going to kill himself? On the because way Dylan, home and that panic. Because Dylan, 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 Dylan did something similar. Dylan, Dylan knew he was going to, as much as if it was impulsive, Dylan needed to be out of the house. And that's why he said he wanted to practice his drums and could I go for a bike ride? Mm. Dylan needed me to leave the house. So as soon as, as soon as I, it made no sense that Peyton wasn't coming and Peyton wanted to play basketball. He, and I'm clearly not mad about it. It's not like I'm saying I, I wasn't mad about the marks. I totally understood. I'd already gone through this with him at Christmas time. He felt comfortable enough to tell me. And um, none of it was there. So to call and ask me how long I'm going to be, he's never done that. And Dylan tried to get me. So I knew my brain just knew he's going to fucking kill himself. Yeah. You knew. So I took me probably 15 minutes to get home. And that's like, it's just a panic. And then running around, I still remember running. It just felt like forever. Mm. And, and that to me was, is, was worse. It was more damaging than me. 
going through that than the, than the physical bolt. Because I had to live with the agony for like 30 to 40 minutes. You know? That shock, did it affect your physical ability to do things? Because being someone that loved to move around and stuff, like, like you said, your nerves and all this has been affected. Because that's something no one ever really faces, what you went through, Tom. So on the, I think it's the, uh, yeah, I'd be the Peyton Dillon Bud Memorial Fund Instagram fund. Look at my post about the weekend yesterday. And yeah, that'll help look at that one, yeah. Why do you do that? But tr- grief isn't an emotion. Gr- grief is in you, is, is what you have to deal with emotionally. But grief isn't physically in your body, okay? Trauma is a physical entity physical being within your nervous system so when you're dealing with trauma and you're dealing with grief usually at the same time they're different so the grief is there like the like i'm going to like a feeling like an emotion and you got to deal with it the trauma you got to deal with differently even though it feels like grief so when i get the Mm -hmm. trauma comes to surface it feels like a bad grief grief wave but it isn't the problem is actually in my nervous system. There's books on this. And I still read about it. I'm reading a new one now. And you have to find ways to slowly get it out of your body. And there's a book called The Body Keeps Score. So for me, when you ask that, it's not as obvious to, uh, to people, but you can have a tap on your leg or your hands from anxiety, right? You can also have that because there's trauma and that's, it's signaling and you're getting, you're getting it out that way. Okay. For me, what I notice change is that my arm will just flail. I have no control over it. That's the trauma when I'm re-traumatized. And I'm slightly traumatized now. Okay. And biggest one for me, and it's better, but when I first when it first happened, my jaw was like this. And people go, Your jaw's out. Go, what do you mean my jaw is out? I mean, that was like this. And I pull it back in and you know. And then it was I'd be talking and do that, like that. Freaking embarrassing. But as well as I still think that happens some. I don't know because I can't feel it. So, for instance, right now, I have no feeling in this part of my face while I'm talking to you. You wouldn't know that. I don't think my jaw is out, but I wouldn't know because I can't feel this. So, when I'm really traumatized, my face moves forward, tenses up, tenses up, and loses its feeling. So, when I'm crying, believe it or not, in a trauma, I don't know I'm crying except I know there's tears coming out because of my eyes. But I don't know it until the tears hit my legs or my hand because my face goes totally numb. So like from here down right now, I'm numb, but I don't feel tense. So I'm assuming my chin's not out, but maybe it's it is. No. So, and what, what, what this is from, and it's why if all of a sudden somebody crashed through your jaw to rob you, you're going to either run as fast as you can, or you're going to maybe do both. But the first is you're going to flinch up and your neck muscles are going to tighten. Yeah. Right, your jaw, oh, yeah, and your legs. So, one of the things that I found out my quads have always been super tight. As a runner, I would blow muscles because my ta- quads were tight. Remember that, okay? My after the, the incident, my quads were like rock, my neck wouldn't move, and my jaw jumps out. That's where it, that's where the trauma was stored. 
But then you got to ask yourself, how come my quads have been tight my whole life to the point every massage therapist, every doctor says, God, you're because I've been in a state of PTSD since childhood, but it's not a big blow at once. It's a little bit tick, 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 tick every day, which is why some people have trauma and they don't know it because it wasn't from one bad thing. It was the same little thing every day your whole life. So you stayed ready. You stayed in flight mode. You stayed scared as a kid. It's why another reason I was so successful. You want to bring, bring this back. I walk into every room and I've already sized everybody up. I can walk into an auditorium and know where every exit sign is. When I sit down, I can't have, I have to have the wall behind because I need to see everything going on. Because I'm the most comfortable with what I can use. My one talent is that I'm in a constant state of alertness, preparedness. That's why I feel Fleury was so good when he was little. He had to know everything was coming because he's a scrapper and they're coming at him. So you develop a heightened sense of awareness. Not because you're smarter, because you're scared. <laughs> because you had your feelings, because you weren't allowed to have feelings, you actually told everybody you weren't afraid of anything. I, I never thought I was afraid of anything. I was a liar. I'm afraid of most things. That's the honest answer. So now that, the, now that I have to deal with these kids again, I go back to where I was. I regressed right away to exactly where I was at 48 when I cracked. And I had to start my recovery totally over again. Except with this weight, why do you want to live anyway? Usually you recover because of your wife or your kids or your parents. A purpose. A purpose. You know, it's hard to find a purpose when you loved your kids the way I love mine. That's why I have empathy for parents that stay stuck. Most parents that lose kids, unfortunately, stay in a victim role. They don't find a purpose. They don't enjoy people's weddings. They don't care to go to kids' graduations. They don't want to go watch other kids' hockey games. And trust me, I couldn't either for a year. I had a girl break up with me because I wasn't going to go watch your kids play hockey. I don't blame you. <laughs> to be honest, I don't blame you on that one. Well, no, you can't, but you don't know. But, you know, I, I, I look at it in all fairness. There's, those are the cards I was dealt. That's like any, if you're born bipolar, if you if you develop your borderline personality disorder, if you're dealing with sexual abuse, whatever it is, or just depression, mild or severe, those are your cards. I don't get to go back and go, well, if only my kids are alive. I don't. It happened. It's done. I need to process that first. And then my, 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 my decision now is I can stay where I'm at and grump wine complain like people can about COVID or I can go, those are my cards and it's not anybody's fault and nobody has to ruin their life. And I can't expect everybody to remember their death date, blah, blah, blah. And I need to go, can I make the best of my life with what's left given? I have a burden, Zach, to carry that you don't. And once I accept that I have a burden that you don't, just like I'm 5'8", not 6'2", right? Just like I wasn't as good at hockey player as Steve, whatever it is that we need to accept, I need to accept that I've lost my kids and they'll never be totally explainable and I can't change it anyway. What do I do with my life that has some meaning? And with that attitude, I've managed to have a better life than I would have had with a defeatist victim role mentality. That's all. It doesn't mean my life as good as it was before my kids, but that, that's not the comparison. There's my life with my kids dead and how I felt and do nothing. Or there's my life as it is now where I have to work on my grief. I have to take my trauma. I've got to have these podcasts where I share openly and honestly. And you know what? I'm glad I cried. I'm glad I shared. 
because it's what I need to do and I need to show other people it's what they need to do. And at the end of the day, when people tell me that I matter and I saved lives, that people run up to me at Starbucks and hug me, saying I saved their life by watching me on TV. And because I cried, they broke down and cried and went and got counseling because they were going to kill themselves. This is a true story. If I can remember that on my bad days, it makes me want to get up the next day again. And in the days that it's too painful, like it could happen on this, when I really get sad that I really miss them, all I say is that is just get through to the moral. Just get through to the moral. Because I've learned, Zach. There is no feeling that lasts usually more than a day. And when people are depressed and sad to talk to me, I ask them how often they're happy. And they'll tell me about times. And I'll go, well, how long does that last? Well, I don't know. I said, think about it. And if you don't know, go home, count it, and call me. And you usually will tell you, you know, happiness lasts about a day or two. And then other stuff comes in, like anger and disappointment or depressed or bored. The feeling, the feelings, your feelings change a lot during the day. I, I, that's what I write about. It's one of my tools. Journal? I see, I journal my feeling changes. And there's a major shift I write about it. And then I can tell how long I've been in the state. I've been in the state too long. I know that's not normal. Because feelings should change. So when I'm really sad, I have enough confidence now to know it won't last. Mm-hmm. It's got to get through to the moral. That's my tool. Just get through to the moral. Tom, what do you do when you're, when you're sad or you're happy and all this? Do you know that you can switch your sadness right away into happiness? Or do you, do you face that sadness and go through it and experience the sadness? Well, the healthy way and the way I do do it. Yeah. Is that when I get sad, if you noticed, I didn't try to turn it off with you, even though I know you got viewers or people you're going to show this to, right? There's it's nothing not to fake, hide. It's real. No, no, it's not fake. I'm not doing it for show like Hollywood. It's real. And I'm choosing. This is the way it is. I have to ride it out. And I also know it won't last that long. Like I'm probably okay by now. I'm probably a little not as high, but that's okay. It's just, you know, whatever. It's a weight. But every feeling is the real you. Mm-hmm. See, feelings are hard. You can't control when feelings come. You can learn to stuff them. You can learn to compartmentalize. But when the feeling surfaces there and you let it happen, it's real and it's there for a reason. Okay? That feeling can now change into an emotion and a thought. So you, and you can control that a little bit, but not totally. But what you have total control is, is your behavior. Your feeling, emotion, thought can be stopped right there. And that's what you call maturity and coping skills and all the other stuff. Once you turn in that, not anger, because anger is a good emotion. So there's no bad emotions. Once, once you stop resisting your emotions, you learn they don't last. You get to enjoy them all and you actually feel human. So just like people trying not to feel sadness, people that try not to be angry, they're both messed up in my opinion. Anger is okay. Sadness is just another thing. So I let my sadness happen. I let my anger happen. What I do now, though, is I don't stuff the anger like I did when I was younger. Pretend I'm not angry, so I'm not like my dad. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I'm raging. I raged when I was young. You did not want to be around when I was letting it off. Okay? I, I, I've raged during COVID. Let's just admit it. I have. No, oh, of course. Not but it's a signal that I'm out of balance. It's a signal that this has got me. It's a signal that I need to make some changes. But 
anger is okay. And when I'm angry now, I go and have that mature conversation. Hey, what you did, I thought we talked about. Hey, what you did, it's really disappointed me. And, and more of here's, here's the one, what I found out. Hey, you really made me sad. And because I can't handle sadness, I converted to anger. That's what I learned. My anger wasn't because I was angry. Because people hurt me. But I can't handle that feeling of hurt like a lot of people. So the way I dealt with it is that I quickly switched chemically, sadness to anger. Anger I can handle. You know, I'm used to that. That feels better. Well, fuck, let's go at it. But I'm actually not angry. I'm actually hurt. But I didn't know how to tell somebody that they hurt me. I didn't tell somebody, you know what, this is why it hurts me. Now my relationships grow because if I can tell somebody that really loves me how they hurt me, chances are they're not, they're going to try not to do that. Was it ego that would stop you from saying to somebody that, Hey, you've hurt me. Like you didn't want them to be like, ah, ha, I got yeah. to Tom. I hurt. That would be part of it. Yeah. It's kind of like what makes it, what makes inflation or what makes it this, there's always multiple things. So the real reason I wouldn't be able to tell somebody I'm hurt is I didn't know I was hurt because I had shut myself off from feelings, okay, mostly, okay? I wouldn't have had real feelings anyway. They mm-hmm. would have been muted. It's like the chair off me, I can feel it, but it should have hurt way more, okay? It's like the strap, okay? So I didn't really know what I was feeling at any, any point in time, but it was more, I was brought up to know that feelings aren't welcome. Feelings aren't to be talked about. Feelings are weak. And when you have that as your upbringing, then you, you, you continue that for the rest of your life, all for different. Eventually, it would be, I don't trust people either. That's another one of my things. So because I can't trust, I'm not going to be honest. Because if I share what I'm like, they're going to use it against me. And all of those, same way as people don't like to go to psychologist. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I'm First time you. I went to a psychologist was 36. I went for six weeks until I thought I was well enough. And then I stopped going and I never talked about it. And then I forgot about it for like 20 years. Because I do how to stuff things, stuff memories I don't like. Mm-hmm. I'm a guy that funds counseling for people that can't afford it. I'm a person that tells all my friends you should have a counselor on staff just like a dentist. You should go in and talk to a, a mentor or a coach or somebody every couple of months. But 50% of my friends do and 50 don't. What my fiance you- never went to a counselor until we started dating. She sees one once a week now and her life is better, and our relationship is better. Quality of life. Yeah, yeah because you, you get to find out why your behaviors are a certain way. It doesn't mean you have to change them. You get to understand it, which means you can then take responsibility for your role in every interaction. If that makes sense. Totally does. Tom, did you, when you were during, during your recovery, did you do seek out mentors or religious gurus or something like crystals or something to help yourself through healing. So like a Tony Robbins. I was looking at, yeah. So when I, when I was working on my recovery from addictive behaviors, you know, I, I started trying to lead a spiritual life. Um, I started developing proper friendships Uh, I went to counseling, which would have uncovered stuff about unmet childhood needs and codependency. Once I learned about shame and codependency, I then went and sought counselors for those because I knew I had that. That's Tom Budd. Whatever I I learned that I knew was a potential answer, 
I wasn't afraid to go hire someone, read about it, and, and do it. So right now, believe it, I'm reading a PhD book on the vagus nerve and how it impacts our hearing in other ways, uh, and including trauma reactions, okay? Because yeah, that's interesting. Long I am on it. So then there's the, the recovery from Dylan and Peyton. Well, when Dylan died, I was good for four months and I'm doing all the tools and, and, I, and I knew enough from my original recovery of addictions, open-minded, shut my mouth and open my ears, do what I'm told. So I made a list of 30 things that everybody was telling me to do and I, none of it I liked and none of it I wanted to, but I knew I wasn't going to survive. So each day I'd take something from that list and do it, including the one was call these people in Calgary that lost a kid. What, call people up I don't know? Call people up when I'm crying uncontrollably? Call up and admit my kid died and you're all going to think it's my fault i did it because i was told to one was named ken mcneil he saved my life major oil guy in calgary ken yeah, McNeil. Ken yeah yeah and and he had already lost a kid before mine and then he saved me and every time i broke down i called him because he got it and then i lost my second one i called him again he felt so bad because i lost two and how did that possible and da 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 well guess what Open what I was saying is two years ago, Ken called me. He lost his second. There's mm-hmm. two people that didn't know each other, and we help each other stay alive. That's just one thing. So on that list of 30, I probably did 20 of those 30 things in the first year, and I re-engaged in life within a year. And I started doing things to help others out, and I was able to help Peyton out. And when Peyton died, I white knuckled it for four months and I didn't care if I lived. And the only reason I woke up was to see what God was going to throw at me now. Cause you know what? This is nuts. This is crazy. What I've been through. This is nuts. I just wanted to wake up. So you're going to take out dad. Now you're going to take out a leg in a bike accident. Or am I going to get can't, what are you going to do? That was why I woke up every day. Didn't care if I died. Didn't care if I lived. Nothing. And then matters. I started doing, started doing inappropriate things as coping mechanisms what would you do if you don't Oh, I drug relapsed. I was on a three. Like the coke and the, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would probably was on a three-day run and ended up somewhere where I shouldn't have ended up. And I knew, and this is like when you shouldn't care, and I don't care. I mean, that's the thing. It's that I don't care about anything. In this state, I have instant relief. I'm not responsible. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can get mad at me. It's the perfect state for me. And that's why it's dangerous and it's a delusion and it's a lie. It never turns out and it doesn't work. And, um, but I'm in that space and I'm on day two or three. And, you know, in that state, I realized, you know, I'm going to die. These people are going to kill me for my money. And I knew it. And for some reason, I knew I had to survive and I had to get my wits about me. And I had to basically get clean, get sane, get my wits to get out of this situation. And I did. Well, the next day I couldn't say I don't care if I live or die because clearly I, I clearly I cared if I lived or I wouldn't have done that. So on that day when you ask about it, on that day I made my list up of 12 people and I called in spiritual leaders from Vancouver, Calgary, Theo Fleury. I called in specialists in addiction, cross addiction. I brought in trauma specialists. I met them and I said, I want to live and I need help. And I need help now. I'm scared because I had used drugs three times in six weeks to tell you the truth. I flew into the States to trauma centers and I went and had a friend who tried to get me to try ketamine the first time and I didn't, but I, you know, I, I got to try something. I got into a ketamine clinic. There's a video on YouTube of me and ketamine. I don't know if you've ever seen it. 
the story of surviving trauma and depression anyway all of it together it worked you are know, you still my, doing my ketamine life. or no pardon are you still using ketamine i, I go i go back for booster shots yeah. yeah yeah so if i'm feeling way off and i and i'm at least doing my own tools and i'm trying my own stuff but nothing's really working i'm going in for a session it's kind of like going to church for me okay you know i've never gone to church and come out feeling like worse of a person Mm-hmm. I have come out of church going, eh. And sometimes I come out going, I'm feeling positive and I feel like a better person. So what's the reason for me to never go to church? There really isn't. So ketamine's the same way. You know, there, is, there is no reason not to, as long as I'm trying on my own to do everything. If it's not working, I got to try something. And then it usually does help, to tell you the truth. Did booze play a factor in what you were doing? Booze? Yeah. Or were you never a booze guy, really? Well, you know, the, the purest, the, the old timers addiction would go, booze is a gateway to the drugs. I mean, it's a theory. You know, sitting here now, if I say booze drink, I got a full wine, so I have no interest in it. And oh, I, you don't I drink. Have you don't drink? No, no, you, you don't, don't drink. drink. Or do you drink now? Or? I'm not now currently drinking, but that doesn't mean I won't have a drink sometime. It just doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I, there's marijuana in the house. I have no interest in it. But when I can't sleep, I'll do a gummy bear before I take a sleeping pill because I think that's I think that's healthier. Um, you know, the, 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 it doesn't doesn't do anything for me. But when, if you put a couple of lines of cocaine in front of me and I'm having a rough day, you let them sit there long enough, I'm going to have a hard time not touching them. That's okay. why I got to be honest. That's the compulsive, obsessive nature of addiction for me. Right. But booze, booze, booze was never that. And Tom, you know it's never one line will do. No, well, you know, that's that's one thing. I can probably get away with one line. But if I do the second line, I'm going to lie, I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to sneak out, and I'm going to go get it. Because if you understand, it was the one, that first time was the one time in life I actually felt free and understood. And if I wasn't, tough luck. And, and you know, and that's where you got to be. That, that's, that's the enticement to that kind of drug. And that's the danger because it's a lie. It's It's a... It's a mask. It's a mask. It is a mask. It is a mask. But I can also get that some people will say things like, why don't I write a book? Well, early on, I've never thought of, I I didn't want to write a book because writing a book's a lot of ego. Mm -hmm. So I have to check my motives. It's another one of the tools I got. You know, it sounds like a lot of work. Well, it kind of is. But writing a book to me could lead to a lot of egoic thoughts and a lot of egoic behaviors. And I need to make sure my ego never gets out of whack again. That's one of the reasons I retired also is to be a really good investment banker. You can't be half in and half out. It's like going to the Olympics. You know, you're going there to win gold, right? That's what it's like to be. If you want to be a really good investment banker, you better be, you, you got to want it all. And um, my personality that doesn't work. So I'm, and I don't want to go in and try to do 80% or 70% because the risk is too great. That's why I don't take full-time jobs. I'll take some little assignments or, you know what, just have, just have me do it for free and I'll help you out. That's what I typically do because then I don't feel the same obligation. So it's, it's, it's a matter of finding things that, that keep me from letting my ego get back to where it was. So who's, I don't drink, but I want to say I don't do it because of the other stuff. I you know, just... I don't need it to feel happy. I don't need it to feel more of anything. I'm okay with just feeling what I feel on my own. Mm-hmm. I'm day 79 sober nowadays. So we'll see how Pardon? long it goes. 79 you know, days. How many days. 79. That's good. That's good. Start somewhere, you know, Tommy. I, the anxiety was fucking me up, man. It was bad. Yeah. 
But were you using were you using alcohol inappropriately in your opinion? Oh yeah. After a while, okay. it became daily, yep. and then it started becoming. Well, this time around it was good, but it was one time before, you know, the substances as well back in the day. Yeah. Not now, but back in the day, like two years ago. Yeah, okay. So for me, to be honest, so when people ask me about COVID, you know, I've used drugs multiple times since the beginning of COVID. I've broken down, and, and it's one of the reasons I've, you know, I've strengthened my recovery in the last two to three months. You know, I brought in a new, because I, I didn't want to do Zoom counseling. And, and there was no meetings. And I'm mad at my counselor because every month he says, well, next month, next month, I'll come back. And I'm not going to do non-face-to-face. So you see that stubborn alcoholic type behavior, you know, I'm in control, not you. And then I'm angry and resentful. Resentments, I got a long list of resentments. And until COVID, I, I got rid of them. You know, even over stuff with my kids. But in COVID, I reverted back. So guess what? Every now and then I snap. And I've used drugs. I need to say it. That's what an addict does. It, recovery can be an ongoing process. And I've let it slip. Mm-hmm. Or maybe maybe with what I've gone through with my kids and all that, maybe I'm expecting too much out of myself to be able to always hold it together. Bottom line is I don't want to. I'm doing things differently. And my goal is to never do a drug again. That's my goal. And, you know, I'm whatever number of days. I try not to actually count anymore because – it's just today that I care about. And I'm having a good day. And it's day. just day by day, right? Like some days, fuck, it'll happen. Whatever. Hey, yeah. you're here, you know, and you're, yeah. you're pushing forward. That's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. So just so that you, it's good sharing with someone to like remind ourselves of where we've fallen and also make sure somebody else is learning. So one of the things I said, which wasn't a lie or really inaccurate, but I want to make sure that I put things in the right context if I was asked about the relationship between alcohol and, and drugs, knowing you don't want to do drugs, there isn't anyone, including me, that can successfully drink alcohol and not eventually do the drugs. Okay. I don't follow the theory because I'm training my brain on a glass of wine, on a glass of wine, on a glass of wine, on a glass of wine. And then three weeks later, bang, I do cocaine. I'm not that guy. But I know that one or two glasses of wine, I don't think of cocaine. Okay. Third glass of wine, I sometimes do. Four glasses, 50% chance I'm going to find a bag. That's where alcohol is dangerous. So, I, and again, the safest thing to do is to never drink if you don't want to do cocaine. And, you know, that's, that's fine. And great. My personality is probably why I, 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 I run into problems every now and then. But for me, I have no interest in having an ordinary glass of wine, believe it or not. I'll never buy a glass of wine at a restaurant, but I got the best wine collection going behind me. When somebody's over here and it's family and they're having some, everybody knows the rules. It's like I'm telling you, let me have a glass and don't let me have another one. And everybody knows it's never going to take me out one ever. Like I know that. I don't want to explain that to a sponsor. It's too hard. And they're going to go, well, why bother? Why take the chance? And so I'm really careful with others because I know with alcohol, for some people, one glass is enough to take them out on alcohol. One glass is enough to get them on the cocaine. I know where I'm at and I don't think I'm flirting with it. But you know, I haven't had a drink in months and months. And I don't know if we'll have it, you know, but I don't want to say no. But I know when I do, it'll be with my fiance or my sister. And they already know it's one glass. That's as much as I ever want. Because I'm not going to take what I consider a risk. 
Was it people, people saying like, come on, Tom, have another one, have another one. Or is it just, you need someone to say, Tom, last glass. No, I, I actually don't even need anybody in that. I, I want to taste it. Cause it's like ra raising a puppy dog or a that's the stuff I've raised. I put it away. Uh -huh. I like to see how it tastes. So it's, it's a glass max I need or want. And usually I don't even have it. It's not like I do it every time. I don't, I know I could, but I also know I only going to allow myself, but I'm a guy that has, I'm pretty strict. It's kind of like when I'm during COVID now, if I'm going to travel alone or my girlfriend or fiance is going away, I've got a guy that's a professional and I call him in, stay with me. Cause I don't trust myself a hundred percent of the time. No, I might trust myself 95%, but I'm going to shut that last 5%. So it's like, Anybody I've ever bought drugs from, or if I've ever had a relapse and met someone, you know, when I'm in a sane mind, I call them hoping that they're reasonably nice people saying, if you ever hear from me again, if you ever see me again, don't you give me that shit no matter who I say it for or what it's for. Yeah, and that saved my ass before. But for some people, you know, they actually call you up, hey, how's it going? Just checking in on you. They're hoping they can trigger you and you buy more. Right? But my family knows my challenges. And, you know, my family also knows my, my, my sort of limits. And I don't know about you, my family would rather see me have a glass of wine every now and then than never have it. So it's not like they're mad at me if I have one. Well, it just shows them that, hey, he can at least have one and enjoy it with us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and they don't want to look at themselves either. You know, my, my, my family, when they're honest, would go, yeah, I ended up there. But it could have been them just as easy. Mm-hmm. I always do that. I always put myself in boats like that. You see somebody and they're struggling. You're like, that could easily be me. We're one step away. Yeah. And I always told people going places. Why, it's why I've never really judged criminals or whatever. Or I, I'm very forgiving to people. Or, you know, I made a business out of when companies that tried hard eventually crashed. I didn't run away looking for the next bright guy. I stayed with the guy till he picked himself up. He had to make a judgment. And they remembered that, right? So I'm, I'm not with people... Partly because, you know, I didn't do everything right as a kid. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't squeaky clean, right? I had one foot on one side of the tracks and one foot on the other side of the tracks. I ended up on the right side. But I could have been on the other side just as easy. And I don't ever let myself think otherwise when I'm honest with myself. So I, I cut most people some slack over that stuff. Tom, speaking of tracks, you love yeah. vehicles. Yeah. Where did yeah. that love come for? Like just love for speed in that. Well. And by the, the way, you have a pretty cool license plate. I think it was, I close them. I close them. Yeah. That was my Carrera GT that I had that on. I got that in, in Calgary. A, a secretary bought it for me as a birthday present. And of course, some people loved it and a lot of people hated it. And uh, I remember one day we closed this huge deal that everybody said couldn't close. And we stole it off the big bank owned firm, which I loved doing. And I took the plate off my car and I taped it onto my briefcase. And I walked all over Calgary all day long with eye closed on my briefcase up and that's down. Fine. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that, so that's part of the addictive personality. That's yeah. not addiction, but that's and all the, the you know, I'm going to stick it to somebody or I'm going to show you or a rebel without mm -hmm. a cause. Addiction manifests in several ways, right? 
Mm-hmm. And when I look at it now, I laugh or whatever, but I know that's not appropriate, right? It's just, it's not appropriate. It was funny. Not, it was a funny time, let's just say. Yeah, yeah it was fun. And, you know, and as I say, I, I wouldn't do a lot of it different. I would have just tried to stay in balance or keep the car. It's like Jill Mendoz. I was saying this to my fiance. Jill Mendoz was a great driver. But when he won, he won big. He didn't finish a lot of races because he was reckless and he was and he took too many risks, right? So, like, when you think of the track, staying on the track, you have to do it every round. It doesn't matter how fast you are. If in the last lap you spin out, you're done. Yeah. Or if you're going so fast that you have to brake harder, your brakes don't last the full race, right? So, so why do I love racing? You know, anything I took into it, I learned everything about something. So that gave me something to do, another distraction, another way to keep my mind busy, a way to keep my mind from feeling anxious, scared, or whatever. But when I really look at, at these things – all of my activities were all adrenaline boosting activities. And I go, was that a coincidence? No, I was doing things to get the same effect that cocaine gave me. I didn't do cocaine though. It was 48 Zach. Oh, so it wasn't a thing that you were doing while you're working and all that. Like no, about Wall no, Street everybody, was, everybody was accusing me of doing, buying Coke for my clients and prostitutes. And that's how I stole the business. No, I stole it. Cause it was good. Mm-hmm. I took them away to places, whatever they did to their business, but I didn't. But I got into cocaine at 48, and 18 months later, I was into Betty Ford. I went from doing a bag to two eight balls a night in less than a year. Ooh. Yeah, so true. You burnt that car, didn't you, as well? Uh, the car I burnt was my Ferrari, Enzo. Oh, my God. Like a Enzo. Right. That's a great story. So I had the Enzo. And uh, it was a big charity function. Hey, how did you get the Senzo? Did you? Those, they're rare to get, aren't they? Like, oh yeah. I, I, the so I never bought a new car till I was forty. Okay. And then I bought a few, and then you know eventually you know I would have had I would have had my first car would have had fifty million in the bank. I would have bought a Mercedes five hundred SL. And I'd struggled with that purchase, and then. Uh, why did and you struggle? Was it you're not a car guy, or was it just? No, I didn't spend my money, Zach. I'm like I'm, I'm a save it guy. I'm a guy that you know calculated. I'm only going to spend you know ten uh, percent of my annual income. I'm only going to spend one percent of my assets in any year. I had formulas strict. I was disciplined. That's why the cocaine freed me. I was disciplined. I had fifty million in the bank, and I was still wearing tip top suits. You just didn't give a fuck about that stuff. No, I gave a fuck, but I wasn't spending the money, the embarrassment or whatever. It wasn't worth it. The, the wine I drank with $10 a bottle. Now, if it's not 500, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but seriously, I had 50 million in the bank when I bought my first Mercedes car. new, okay. And then I probably had a hundred million in the bank, in the bank. I'm not talking, I'm talking no debt. I haven't owed any money since I was 28. Holy shit. In the oh, yeah, we, we didn't get this in the early part of this, the video, but anyway, nobody didn't know anything was 28. By the time I was 40, I probably had 100 million in the bank of liquid securities or assets, including mm-hmm. houses, right? Um, I probably had a, 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 a nice car, but then a not, a not, yeah, I had an NSX, NSX. Oh, yeah, accurate, yeah. And, yeah, and then I'm on the phone with Rob Leach, a um, really good buddy of mine. And uh, he started talking about this Enzo for sale, and it was like nine hundred thousand dollars. And I'm talking, and I said, you know, Rob, like, you know, and he knew what I was worth. He knew what I had, and I, I said, you know, 
can, can I can I afford this car? You know, nine hundred thousand. He just broke out laughing. He goes, "Fuck! Do you know how many guys own Porsches and Ferraris and they lease them, or how many guys have two or three million in the bank and they're buying million dollar cars or whatever?" And I had no idea, and I I couldn't imagine that because I I thought I was still poor at a hundred million. But Tom, did you and know this, these people like? All these guys but, you're around every day spending this money. You never asked that. You know, you just assume you saw the way they lived. They had nice suits, big houses. You assumed they had more. Okay. So at a hundred million, I didn't know how rich I was, and I was worried about spending nine hundred thousand on a Ferrari. So I bought it, and then event, it blew up on me while I was driving it. I was engulfed in flames while I was driving, and I got out and started running. This is where you start to feel like, as I'm running down the highway and there's cars coming at me, nobody outside of a Soyuz in the middle of nowhere stopped and see if I was okay, stopped to talk to me. They all saw the car and they wanted to see the car and they're all out there and they all know the end zone. They're all in tears. Oh my God, it's an end zone. I'm down the road with my arms and hair burnt on my head. But here's where my sickness calls him. I called to tell them I'm going to be delayed, but I'm still coming. <laughs> We're not going to be able to put the Enzo on display like we said. My next call to with Rob Leach to get me another Enzo right away. I don't care what it costs because I didn't want anybody knowing I lost mine to a fire. I saw what was going on and it was going to be another one to Tom Bud stick it to everybody. So I ordered the car and then I had him put an order in for a new license plate right away before, before we found the car. No, I put in the order. I gave him the license plate I wanted. And he found the car was to get order the plate. So he found the car in Saudi Arabia for 1.5, 1.6 million. I said, take it. And then um, he got me my license plate and it said, what fire? So by the time I got back, to, within about a month or five weeks, the car is in Kelowna, the plate's in Kelowna, the plate's on. I didn't take the car out a lot anyway. I would go and drive down there and go, oh, I thought your car was on. So that was the license plate because I didn't want people always asking me. So my license plate just said, what fire? So I denied the fire for years, except it's all over YouTube. <laughs> yeah. so it, was, it, was, it was the most hit video in that month, that year. What happened? Did, did you find out or did you get your money back or did something The insurance covered it. Yeah. And it was replacement costs. So, you know, as long as I made it look like I didn't overpay. So I think I got a million and a half from them. And uh, you know, I was under investigation. They investigated a hit on my life. Uh, they, uh, they, they sued the manufacturer, Ferrari. They sued the mechanics on the car. Everybody was sued, cross-sued. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't care. It didn't, didn't bother me. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I think it was one of those flukes, you know, some oil dripped down from something and hit the brakes. It happens. <laughs> I was doing 260. They get hot. Yeah. Right. So, but I guess there's been five or six Ferraris like that go up in flames and there's a suspicion there's something wrong with them. And I don't, I, I, I think that there was something dripped off the car and hit something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what, yeah, do you get up, rid of it now? It's done. Both. The car that I, the car, what happens, I had 10 cars at one point, like all nice. And uh, when Dylan died, I, I had to get rid of the car that him and I drove in all the time, a Ferrari 599. Mm -hmm. And then I, I got rid of another one. And then I kept them because of Peyton. And so like on Peyton's 18th birthday, he drove a Carrera GT, a uh, uh, Porsche 918. Oh, yeah. And, and a 
or GT or the GT3. He drove four in one day with pitches. Like, who, what kid has that in their portfolio, right? So, but he liked it, and I'd let him drive them every now and then. Well, once Peyton died and I settled out from that, the you know, honest answer is until last summer, I've had zero interest in my cars and I actually don't enjoy them. It, it just, it's one of those things that just triggers me. Did you sell and, all the rest of them or? No, no, I, but I'm down to four because it's kind of like, why do I own these? Why did I own them in the first uh, place? And, and, and I did like to drive them and I would use that as my excuse, but I probably owned them for other reasons too. And um, so as part of my recovery, I needed to get used to letting things go. I needed to get used to going, Tom Budd is the same guy with 10 cars or four cars. So I'm down to four because that's how many garages I have in the one house. You should keep the GT. And, Did you keep the GT? Yeah. yeah that's a collector the, now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the 918, you know, because that one Dylan helped me design. And um, so I'll keep the, I, I use the 918 and the Mad August car rally. We, we take that with the nice. kids' ride. And um, the Carrera GT, I just love. And, and my fiance loves racing cars, so I've, I'm actually back into it. I started going back out to the track, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more. And, um, but I see what you're saying, though. Like, what was the point of all this? Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. Happy that you And I'm, just a, I'm not unhappy without the car. So, again, I, I weighed it, and I sold one. And, you know, I sold the Ferrari. I, I sold it for $2.8 million. I've made money in almost every car I've bought. <laughs> when I do you hear like that I story? Bought, Pardon? When do you hear that story? Oh, I made money on a car. <laughs> yeah, it's rare. Yeah. Well, when I buy these really expensive collector type cars, not like if I go buy right now the brand new GT3 this year, I'm going to lose my shirt. But if I buy a car that's limited production that you know they're not going to make ever again, um, you know, it's pretty hard to lose money in those if you buy them when somebody's in trouble. So I, I don't buy things when I want to own them. I know what I'd like to own. And when somebody's getting divorced and financial pressure and the economy's way down, you know, I'm the perfect guy with cash to buy shit. And that's what I do. And then but, you hold it. And when the time is right, yeah. I, I don't have a problem selling. No. So I'm only going to stay in Cali for a bit just for now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say because of this new um, hotel rule, I'm not going to rush back. I'm anticipating that if they won't do it and if they do do it, it won't be a three-day hotel stay, but I'll, I'm going to give things enough time for that to settle out. And then it's just a matter of the weather getting good enough that if I come back in quarantine, at least I can use my yard, right? I don't want to be quarantined and stuck in a house because I'll go crazy, right? So if, if, the weather, if the weather doesn't change, and I'll head over to Mexico first to buy some time because I can't stay in the state much longer, and then I'll fly in from Mexico. Well, those are kind of my alternatives. Have you tried a Peloton bike? Um, I've got one in Cologne, actually. But it's not yeah. the same. No, no. To me, it's, you know, with my makeup, I can't change that. Sitting in a room or a house all day long isn't good for my mental state. Knowing that I have to do it. That's the thing. It's the, the knowing that I have to do it for two weeks will put me out of control. I mean, it's not like I can't do it, but... Why would I want to put myself in that position? Like right down here, it's like right now, the rules in California were worse than Canada for a while, but I didn't care. I, I go right out that door and I'm on a pathway for 30 miles between uh, Santa Monica and Palos Verdes. I live in right on the ocean here, by the way, in California. There's a perfect bike path, polished. They run a Zamboni on it every day, Zach, to clean it. 
So I can go rollerblading, biking, or running, and I can fish in the ocean right out in front of me. And then it's all beach volleyball nets and surfers. I mean, I'm in the Mecca. If you, if you Google Manhattan Beach, I'm in the place to be. So even with masks and outdoor dining only, and you can't go in stores and all those crazy rules, which are now in Canada too, but they weren't when I left, you know, this is a way better place. It's rained two days in the last hundred here. It's perfect. Yeah. So I, that's, you know, I, I know I can go running, walking, biking, and I'm a member of the tennis club here and, yep. you know, and we have the dog with us and Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Tom, I appreciate your time today, man. Not a problem. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. So we'll have to get together in person. I'm tired of zooms as well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's do that. Let's make, let's make a point to do that. And uh, don't, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call me about, you know, when you're having a tough day. And to me, to me, um, I don't surround myself with ex workaholics or ex-alcoholics or ex-drug addicts so that I can share. I, I think that's too simple. I need to find people that I can respect their opinion and trust that can understand my uniqueness. And I don't care if they suffer from addiction. I need them to be able to talk the way you and I just talked. And then I have people to share my feelings with or my life or my frustrations with my fiance or my anger about my dad or whatever it is. And I trust their feedback. That's to me what I look for in my friends in life. And they maybe they have an addiction, maybe they don't. To me, to, to help me with my mental health, I just need to be able to share with people that will allow themselves to be vulnerable, that will allow themselves to be truthful. And they admit that they got some shit too, because that makes them real. You don't want the superficial. <laughs> I don't have any of that anymore. So my support group, believe it or not, from from – Drug addiction, say, is 95% non-drug addicts and 5% is, yeah. right? You need a and, mix you know, of everything. Yeah, yeah but, but they're all people that understand life and they're willing to say their life isn't perfect either. And, and they all have their demons. You know, when people are really honest, you, you find out that, you know, not all marriages are great. And not all couples that are walking hand in hand have the same life in their house. And, you know, and you, you know they need to have someone they can trust isn't going to talk about it. And um, you need to be able to have empathy for it because it's not always clear cut that that's wrong or right, you know? So anyway. You're going to go for a bike I'm right now at, or what are you going to do today? I'm actually going to go check with the fiance and see how she's doing because I'm not sure she knows where I've been for the last two or three hours. 